Fantasy is a natural human activity. It does not destroy or even insult reason. For creative fantasy is founded on a recognition effect, but not a slavery to it. From an essay on fairy stories by J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm Nicholas Kotar, author of fantasy inspired by Slavic fairy tales and seeker after the good, the true, and the beautiful. You're listening to Fantasy for Our Time. In this podcast, I discuss classic and new fantasy media, have long and involved conversations with authors and storytellers, and explore how stories can help us all live a better, more fulfilling life. Hello, dear friends, and welcome to episode 22 of the podcast. In our first two episodes of this series on resilience and courage and stories, we discussed how to find a mentor and the importance of solitude for the deep life. Continuing using Aragorn's life as a model, we're entering the danger zone. How to engage with ideas you don't like or disagree with. This can be a lot like entering the woods of Baba Yaga in the Russian fairy tales, and so, no surprise, the stories can help us a great deal in getting through this particularly dark wilderness. Today's show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. They are the backbone of my work. They inspire me and keep me creating. If you'd like to support this show, you can join for just $2 a month, or more if you'd like. I recently sent out an exclusive gift to my patrons, a new novella set in the Raven Sun universe, The Sun of the Deathless. If you'd like to get your copy, visit patreon.com forward slash Nicholas Kotar. And if you enjoy the podcast, I'd be very grateful if you left a rating and a review on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps other people discover this podcast. Thank you to those who have already done so. And now, on to today's show. And welcome to the third video in our series on resilience and courage through story. For those who don't know what I'm talking about, I will briefly give a quick recap. So, a little while ago, as I was making sense of what seemed at the time to be a kind of calming down in the COVID reality, which is once again ramping up again, partially as a result of the uh, presidential election coming soon. But as things seemed to, to start to get a little bit calmer, it occurred to me that there were some interesting people out there talking about how this is this moment in history and this moment in our lives is a, actually a wonderful opportunity and how many people are starting to see it and are addressing it as a kind of reset button for a lot of different things and one of the more interesting things that i found that people were trying to do was to intentionally start living a deeper life a life more intentional a life more filled with important things that do not include things like facebook ironically of course i'm talking about this on facebook but you know social media can have its bad uses and its good uses and among its bad uses unfortunately are a cultivation of a kind of shallow lifestyle that doesn't allow for the time or the attention or even the ability in some cases to actually deeply engage with important thoughts, ideas, and stories. And one person who has been talking and writing about this a lot is a man named Cal Newport, who is I consider to be one of my mentors, and he's read he's written several books, two of which I highly recommend. They are called Deep Work and Digital Minimalism. Uh, and I do recommend that you read those. Uh, they are fantastic. And he especially talking about how this is a moment to really reassess and to start living a deep life. And he has his own his own definition of what a deep life is. 
as I was reading his definition, it occurred to me that actually his definition meshes very well with my own thoughts when it came to reading uh, a part of the Lord of the Rings that a lot of people miss. It's the life of Aragorn, uh, which is part of the tale of Aragorn in Arwen, in Appendix A of the Lord of the Rings. Anyway, in the life of Aragorn, I found actually a very uh, comprehensive uh, system, a seven-step system of how we, who are thrown in the midst of unexpected difficulties, might actually take and embrace those difficulties and go through them intentionally in order to come out the other end by living a more deep and more insightful life. Last two weeks, we've been talking about the first two steps in that journey, in that quest, if you will. The first one is the need and necessity for finding a mentor. And if you would like to listen to my thoughts on that, I do have the video up on my YouTube channel. Uh, you can, if you just look up Nicholas Kotar author, you will find it. It's very easy to find on YouTube. And the second week, which was last week's video, we talked about the importance of a solitude in our process of making meaning for ourselves inside ourselves and how that's sometimes a complicated process, especially if we don't have mentors or if we haven't taken time to find mentors, whether living or dead, the dead ones being in books, of course. Today's topic is actually one that's fraught with uh, rather more danger than finding mentors and seeking solitude. This, this step has to do with Aragorn's going out into the wild after deciding to assume his doom, the doom of man and the doom that was imposed upon him specifically by Aragorn, as in he has to become the king of the north and the south if he's ever going to be able to marry Arwen. And he went out into the east and the south, into the places where... Uh, Sauron's dominion is complete over the hearts of men. And he decided, rather than going in there to infiltrate it and to set traps for them only, he decided to go in there and actually test the hearts of men. And this is a really interesting thing, because what he did was not simply go in as a guerrilla warrior, although that was what he was, in order to uncover plots and stratagems and lay waste to them in the enemy's territory. He certainly did that, but he also did something else. He also went in and talked to people. He engaged with their worldviews, engaged with their ideas, and was able to take, was able to discern the heart of the people that he encountered, whether their heart was good or bad. And he was not afraid of doing that. And in fact, this was a major step in his becoming the kind of king that would eventually be, be able to unify North and South and different people of different ideas and different needs in a time of great struggle, as what has happened in The Lord of the Rings, the novel itself. For us, this is a very important step. If we transmute it to this seven-step process of acquiring resilience and courage through stories, in our seven-step program, uh, we've entered the danger zone. If Aragorn went actually questing, like physically questing, we are going questing with the mind. And this is a very important step, especially now. If we've become, and not if, as we have become slowly more and more polarized over the last 10 years, so much so that any sort of normal discourse is becoming impossible, especially with the strain of both a pandemic and an election, COVID, of course, has only exacerbated this in a strange and troubling way, something that has, and I'm sure a lot of you have noticed, there is now a political ideology associated with how you respond to the pandemic. And this is the most bizarre thing that I have ever seen in my life. It's scary for reasons that should be obvious to you and me. Really, they should be obvious to everyone. Why an approach to pandemic that seems to embrace different possible 
uh, strategies of dealing with it and possible solutions to the past to the vast problem why that kind of approach that in that allows for different voices to be heard that allows for different solutions to be offered why that sort of approach should be espoused primarily by conservatives which it is by the way pay attention it is and why a doom and gloom approach that prioritizes safety and suppression at all costs should be espoused by liberals. I have no idea. I don't understand why there, there is a political and ideological bent to the way that we respond to disease. It's a very troubling thing. Now, if you don't think this is the case, all you need to do is watch last night's debate. I didn't. I watched the highlights as curated by people that I trust. But it was very clear based on what I saw that there were two visions of how to respond to the to the pandemic vividly on tap during yesterday's debate. <clears throat> and uh, Matushka Ann makes a good point. The question behind the polarization is this, whom do you trust? Which is, of course, what I've been talking about over this past series, is that you do have to decide who you're going to trust. That's step number one. That's choosing a mentor. But that's a difficult process. And again, if you want to get into the nitty-gritty about how to do that and why it's important, please watch my video on it about the importance of finding a mentor through storytelling as well, which is an important step for it. That being said, I don't think that part of the problem is politics at all. I think it's a universal fear of engaging with ideas that you perceive to be dangerous. I think this is a universal problem. I think it's a universal problem now. And I think that the exacerbation of the problem has to do with the general rise in fear. And since I'm probably primarily talking to Christians, uh, to a Christian audience right now, um, I will admit humbly that this is a problem that Christians, we Christians, are very guilty of. What I'm talking about specifically is this. Have you ever had this fear of even reading ideas that you disagree with or texts that are perceived or are heretical for fear of them contaminating you have you had this thought or has any priest or any person in authority ever suggested such an idea to you don't read or don't engage with that because it might leave a bad mark on you now this is a new there's a nuanced answer to this but my first part in the, of the answer is the following there seems to be a bit of magical thinking going on that if you in any way, shape, or form, engage with an idea that you or other people find to be dangerous, that you will be affected by it so much so that you won't even notice how the change has affected you, a kind of curse by association. It's, that seems to be a very strange, almost pagan kind of way of looking at things. On the other hand, I will admit that interacting with stories and ideas that are antithetical to your worldview can make your heart more empathetic and soft to those worldviews, and specifically to people who think and act differently than you. And that can have, that can be a double-edged sword. Now, what I'm talking about here is largely anecdotal, but I think you'll understand the point. When Brokeback Mountain came out, what happened was very, very interesting. A lot of people went to see that movie, obviously. It was a very popular film. But within the small community of uh, the Orthodox that I associated with at that time, at that point I was in San Francisco, um, teaching in a school, I was really surprised uh, and shocked, actually, at how many people, after seeing the movie, were comfortable with expressing um, opinions about that sort of a lifestyle that they never would have expressed before. What I think happened was uh, 
by engaging with the story on a level of heart, which stories do. By entering, by watching that movie and letting it affect them empathetically, some people had their minds changed and their worldviews changed entirely because of their contact with that story. I did see it happen. And for other people, uh, it just provided the coming out of that <laughs> coming out of that movie just provided them with a safe place in which to express ideas that they had already been espousing secretly and quietly. So what? What am I actually talking about? Am I saying that we should not engage with ideas that are that are antithetical to our worldview because our worldview can be changed? I actually I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying two things. I'm saying we should. One, engage with ideas that are antithetical to our worldview. We absolutely should. But two, we should not do it without understanding that such an endeavor and such an idea and such a, an action is dangerous. It can actually be dangerous to our intellectual and our uh, emotional and spiritual life. I think we have to be honest about that. Because this is the point of, what I've, of a lot of what my videos recently have been. Stories affect hearts. So if you read a bad story... And yes, there absolutely are bad stories. Then that bad story will affect you and the way you look at the world, and sometimes not in a good way. So if you're serious about making a COVID deep reset, shall we say, as Cal Newport calls it, and are already beginning to lead a deep life, as I hope you are, and that's why I hope you are here with me listening to me uh, rant, then you do need to do what Aragorn did. Search out foreign ideas so to speak, ideas that are different from your own, ideas that you might find to be abhorrent, and decide by a careful, well-thought-out, and protected uh, approach, find out what the heart of those ideas are. Okay, so how do we do it? I did this recently, <laughs> personal story time. Uh, recently, I happened up across an article by a black author named Fenderson Jelly uh, Clark. I am probably completely destroying his name. I apologize. This was an article that he had up on his personal website, which is called, a personal blog, which is called Thoughts of a Disgruntled Haradrim, which makes this whole Aragorn thing fascinating. Because I actually did what Aragorn did. <laughs> I encountered somebody who identifies himself as a member of those races who lived in the south and the east of Middle-earth and were under the sway largely of Sauron. And he associates himself with them, not because he wants to be with Sauron, but because he thinks the game is unfair and, and, and that Tolkien is actually a closet racist uh, who lumped dark-skinned people into the east and the west as being under Sauron's uh, sway because of their skin color. An arguable point at best, I think. But again, this whole point of this video is to engage with different ideas. So I found an interesting article that this author wrote about the history of blackface in popular culture. It was an absolutely fascinating article. I got sucked into it. It was really interesting, talking about a part of American history that I knew very little about, uh, and I read a lot about American history. And I knew that I was in enemy territory because I know that this man does not share my worldview in most things. He made it quite clear in the name and announcement in the about section of the blog. And yet there was so much that was challenging to me. There was so much there that was appealing to me in his view of the world. His heart 
was good and is good. So this is the portion where we decide how much we want to filter out and how careful we have to be in engaging with them. These are real, actual dangers. Absolutely. <clears throat> but the benefits sometimes can outweigh the risks. I will tell you for sure that if I was not willing to enter into this rather dark view of the world that, uh, that liberal black authors have, dark in the sense that they see enemies in a lot of places, historically where they were definitely, and sometimes in places where they weren't, certainly I don't think that J.R. Tolkien was this author's enemy, and I don't think J.R. Tolkien was a racist in any way. But if I did not venture into that place, I would never have read the works of N.K. Jemisin. And I have recommended N.K. Jemisin, who is a very left-leaning liberal person whose worldview I do not espouse in any way, shape, or form. And that worldview does come across in some of her novels. And those are the novels that are weak. Um, I'm not going to get into it, but I do have some summaries and some reviews of her novels over at my author site at nicholaskotar.com if you want to check it out. But if I had limited myself to that, I never would have read the Broken Earth trilogy, which is possibly the greatest fantasy trilogy of the last 50 years. And it is right up there with some of the best fantasy and sci-fi work that has been produced since fantasy and sci-fi became a popular genre. And I never would have finished that because there is stuff that happens in those novels that I find to be disgusting and awful and abhorrent that has to do with certain worldviews that I could never espouse. But I plowed through it and I got to the end. And what I found was an incredibly profound and deep story about the love of a mother and a child and how sacrificial, self-sacrificial love can literally and figuratively move mountains. That is one of the best messages you could ever get from fiction. One that is very necessary to be swallowed up whole right now. And I never would have gotten that if I had approached her work with a critical eye. If I was looking out for the black heart that I absolutely knew had to be at the core. And it wasn't. Looking into anti-racism, which I've been forced to do, largely because of the astounding response to both racism and anti-racism in the popular and not-so-popular media, I was then surprised and utterly delighted to find people like, to find voices like Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, intellectual, absolutely, incredibly much more intelligent than I am, black people who refuse to kowtow to prevailing postmodern attitudes about race and critical theory. I never would have found them if I had not chosen to go deep into anti-racism as an idea and search it out and see what it's about. Because I, by doing that, I found some of its most trenchant critics and found some of the most intelligent and interesting things that could be said about it. I've committed to doing this because I have steeped myself and I continue to try to steep myself in the teachings and the writings in the, of my mentors and because I regularly make a point of going deep into solitude to assess my own spiritual and intellectual health, something that I talked about extensively in the video last week. Again, you can find that on my YouTube channel. But even that's not enough sometimes. Sometimes what you need is to read a fairy tale. <laughs> sometimes what you need is to read a fairy tale. And here's one that gives us some amazing insight into how to deal with the heart of darkness in ideas that we fear to encounter. 
and maybe even find something useful in the process. This is a story that I retold in episode five, I believe, of my new podcast, In a Certain Kingdom, which you can find at any podcast catcher. And if you're uh, an, a regular Ancient Faith radio listener, it's available on Ancient Faith's website. This is a story called Vasilisa the Beautiful that has little to do with engaging with ideas that are not your own, but it has everything to do with engaging with the fear of the unknown. In Russian fairy tales, the unknown is personified by the forest, by the deep, dark forest, and by such characters as the wolf or as everybody's favorite Baba Yaga. The unknown because everybody says that she eats people, and yet we never in any single story ever actually see her eat anyone, and sometimes she's quite helpful. So let's read some of the story. I'm going to read it for you, and let's see what we can get out of the story in terms of actually finding that heart of darkness in ideas that we don't like. The girls worked. There are two sisters, three sisters, two of which are bad, and one of which is the third and a good one. The candle started to flicker because of a bad wick. One of the girls took some scissors to cut the wick, but instead she put the candle out. It seemed to be by accident, but actually she had been told to do it by her mother. What will we do now? The girl said. There's no fire anywhere in the house, but we haven't finished our work. Someone will have to go get the fire from Baba Yaga. The first daughter quickly said, I won't go. I can see by the light of the moon as it reflects off my needles. The second girl quickly answered, I won't go either. I can see by the light of the stars as they reflect on my darning needle. And then both of them turned on Vasilisa. You have to go. Go get fire from Baba Yaga. Vasilisa went into her closet, put her own dinner in front of the doll. She has a doll, if you haven't heard the story, that she received from her mother, and it is a kind of talking doll. And she said, Here you go, dolly. Eat my dinner and listen to my sorrow. They're sending me out to get fire from Baba Yaga. She'll eat me! The doll ate her dinner, and her eyes sparkled like two candles. Don't be afraid, Vasilisa, said the doll. Go on. Only keep me with you always. Nothing will happen to you even at Baba Yaga's. So in this section, what's actually going on? The reality of the fear of encountering the dark from our perspective, ideas that we think are dangerous or are antithetical to our own worldview. Fear is a reality. How do you deal with it? Well, the story gives us two things. First, it says don't, uh, don't run away from it. That's the first thing. The second thing is you need to have the blessing of your parent. <laughs> what does that mean in terms of the actual world, not the storytelling world? The blessing of the parent in the storytelling world is a kind of mark of the mentor in the real world. So you go equipped into intellectual battle with or intellectual contest, shall we say, with ideas that are not yours with the support and the backing of the ideas of your mentor. This is why it's so important not to do this before you have a very strong grounding in your own worldview. Because if you don't, and you encounter stories that move the heart from a bad place, they will change the way you encounter ideas that are possibly and potentially dangerous to you. So you need to have the backing and the support of your mentor. Again, I mentioned this in the video uh, two weeks ago. But then what do you do next? If we accept this metaphor that encountering the dangerous idea is going into the dark forest into to encounter Baba Yaga, here's what actually happens when Baba Yaga shows up. Vasilisa screwed up her courage and came up to Baba Yaga, bowing deeply to the ground, and said, It's me, grandmother. My stepmother's daughters sent me to get fire from you. Very well, 
said Baba Yaga. I know those girls. Come and live with me for a bit and do some work for me. Then I'll give you fire. But if not, I'll eat you. So what happens here is that Vasilisa immediately encounters the fear with respect. She bows deeply. She bows deeply to the ground. And she assumes a posture of both respect and courage. Fake it till you make it, right? And what is the response from the danger? The danger, the response from the danger is one of grudging respect. Very well, says Baba Yaga. Come and live with me for a bit. But make sure you do what you must, meaning do work for me. If you're going to come out of this unscathed, you have to do the work. You have to actually engage in intellectual exercise with Baba Yaga, with the dangerous uh, idea. And then maybe the idea will give you what you need, the fire. But if not, it will eat you. Meaning if you're not equipped, if you're not doing it with the proper heart, if you're not doing it with the proper state of mind and state of heart and state of physical reality, it might eat you. And then, only then, after going through the first night of difficult work and passing through the first test, Vasilisa is then given a gift by Baba Yaga. And this is the gift that we all receive when we overcome the first hurdle of encountering difficult ideas. Here's what the story has to say. By evening, Vasilisa prepared a gorgeous dinner and sat there waiting for Baba Yaga. As soon as the black rider rode by, darkness fell, and the skull's eyes around Baba Yaga's house started to glow. The trees creaked, the leaves crunched, and here comes Baba Yaga herself. Vasilisa came out to greet her. Is everything done? asked Baba Yaga. Come and see, grandmother, said Vasilisa. She's, Baba Yaga comes in, everything's fine. Baba Yaga sits to eat. And this time, second time, here's what happens when Vasilisa serves her a table. Why are you standing there and saying nothing to me? Asked Baba Yaga. Are you a mute? I don't dare say anything, answered Vasilisa. But if you'll allow it, I'll, I'd like to ask you about a few things. Ask away, but not every question leads to good answers. If you know too much, you'll get old faster, which is an old Russian saying that parents love to give to their children. And so Vasilisa then ventures deep into the difficult questions and says, Who is the black rider who rode past me at your great-grandmother? That's my dark knight. They're all my faithful servants. Vasilisa remembered the three pairs of hands, but said nothing else. Why aren't you asking anything else? asked Baba Yaga. What do you expect? answered Vasilisa. You yourself said, if I know too much, I'll get old faster. And Baba Yaga says a remarkable thing. She says, it's a good thing that you only asked about what's beyond my gates, not within them. I don't like busybodies. And the overcurious, I like to eat. Now I'm going to ask you a question. How did you manage to do all the work I give you? This is a fascinating section because it shows the proper posture that you have to have with ideas that you don't agree with. Vasilisa doesn't come in guns blazing. She doesn't come in with her own way of doing things, saying, this is how I want things to be done. And Baba Yaga, you're going to listen to me. Because if she did, Baba Yaga would eat her, right? And this is the same thing that happens when we engage with ideas badly. If you come in without the posture of humble respect, as in, I will listen to what you have to say, and I will assess later. If you don't do that, then there will not, nothing will come out of it, and you might actually be eaten in the process, as in, you will come out of it much worse than you were coming in. Something else that's really interesting is that by assuming this posture of respect, 
what happens is the Baba Yaga begins to ask her questions. And at that point, what happens is you have a conversation. And now you've not only listened to what the other idea has to say to you, but the other idea begins to interact with your own deeply held conceptions of the world. But it's not enough. Vasilisa notices some things about what Baba Yaga says, but doesn't react. She notices that she, the Baba Yaga has these three hands that do magical uh, tasks for her, but she doesn't ask about the three hands. Because you shouldn't be constantly open about what you are thinking when you're engaging with the dangerous idea. You shouldn't cede your ground, because this is a contest. It's a kind of battle. And Baba Yaga answers that wisdom of Vasilisa's by not spilling her guts, by saying it's a good thing that you didn't do that, because if you had, I probably would have eaten you anyway. Meaning, if you don't have the right posture, don't give up all that you have during the, the contest. Because you may see too much ground. You may overlunge, for those of you who have done fencing, if you overextend, you leave yourself open to, an, to your opponent's attack. So that's how you do the contest. Back and forth, carefully asking, respectfully listening, and giving, but only a little. And taking, but not too much. And if you do that well, what ends up happening? Here's what the story has to say. Baba Yaga ends up actually giving Vasilisa what she asked for, the fire. Vasilisa ran home, her path lit by the glowing eyes of the skull. Finally, on the evening of the following day, she arrived home. As she approached, the thought about tossing the skull, she thought about tossing the skull away. They probably managed to find fire on their own, she thought to herself. But then, the skull started to talk to her. Don't toss me away. Take me to your stepmother, said the skull. She looked at her stepmother's house, and seeing not a single fire lit in any window, she decided to bring the skull. For the first time ever, they met her kindly, and said that for all the days since she had left, they had no fire at all. They couldn't manage so much as catch a spark, and everyone who brought them fire couldn't bring anything past the threshold. It immediately went out. And so they brought the skull into the living room. But then the eyes on the skull started to stare at the mother, at the stepmother and the stepsisters so intensely it was like they were on fire on the inside. They tried hiding, but it didn't matter. No matter where they went, the eyes followed them everywhere. By the morning, the eyes had burned them down completely to ash. Only Vasilisa remained untouched. That morning, Vasilisa buried the skull in the earth, locked the house, and left and went into the city. This is really amazing, especially if we talk about it in terms of the context of, of uh, engaging with difficult ideas. Because eventually something will be given to you by that encounter with the difficult idea. A skull on fire, fire is useful, but it's still fire. And if there's a skull involved, there's probably some magic to it, right? So you have to be careful about how you use it. What Vasilisa does is she takes it and uses it properly. Because the stepmother and the stepsisters have been pretty darn rotten to her. And it's not vindictive on her part to simply bring the fire that they asked for. The comeuppance comes because of the power of the idea, not because of Vasilisa's intention. And that's the point. Even if you learn something and receive something beneficial from the idea, it still has the power of burning through those who are not ready to accept it. So be aware that the ideas can kill others, not only yourself, especially if you're not careful. And the best thing you can do is use it for what it's useful and then bury it again underground and leave. Unless you realize that the heart of that idea is good, at which point you can use it. So you see, the story is about other things. And yet, as so often happens, if you apply it properly, there are some really interesting 
insights that these stories can give to us. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to delve more deeply into this topic, check out my audio series on stories that unite in dark times, available exclusively at nicholaskotar.com forward slash stories that unite. And if you're hankering for more fantasy stories, check out my own Raven Sun epic fantasy series inspired by Russian fairy tales, available now in audio, paperback, and ebook formats. This show is produced by the wonderful Derek Cummins, and the beautiful title music is Lighthouse in the Rain, originally composed by Velislava Franta. You can find her work on SoundCloud.